Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. It's great to have you back. And do you know why I can tell you're healthy again after your uh, bout with illness last week? Why is that? Well, I log on to Twitter this morning, and you're disparaging me with uh, you know, terms <laughs> that I had to look up on UrbanDictionary.com to even understand what you were talking about. I mean, maybe you can inform our listeners what you're trying to call me on Twitter. Look, man, you are nothing if not an Instagram thought at this point in your life. You're you last last week you were taking pictures of your meals. You're you've got a new story every other day. I mean, you're living the life, so just embrace it. Okay, Elizabeth is listening, number one. Number two, I thought it was a compliment until I looked it up, and I realized that that's not a compliment at all. So you really had me on an emotional roller coaster this morning. You're but out look. there, man. But listen, hold on. Before, before we move on, everyone should go read your Instagram story, which published on Friday. I thought it was fascinating. I cannot believe that there are only two guys working for Instagram on all of sports, uh, but it is... Uh, it was timely, and it's definitely something that sets the NBA apart. I think their players embracing the internet and social media is a big reason the game has grown the way it has over the last 10 years. So it was a cool look from you. There's no question. I appreciate you doing that because I had already planned to plug it about six or seven times over the course of the next <laughs> hour and a half. So you just knocked one out for me. Now I'm down to five or six. Yeah, well, good. Um, well, we have a lot of questions today. I'm, I'm excited. We're a day late here because I still I was a little sick uh, on Monday, but it's good to be back, and we've got a lot to get through. So, should we just jump into it? Let's please do it because we got some great questions. And also, by the way, Andrew, you know I put the call out for the female listeners and the international listeners overwhelming deluge from both parties. So it was great that everyone chimed in at openfloormail at gmail dot com openfloormail at gmail.com. Okay, enough prelude, Andrew. Let's get these questions. Okay, so we're going to start with coaching. Joel says, why is Greg Popovich not the clear coach of the year? I understand that every year he can't, he can't win, but this year there is one player on the Spurs that any other playoff team would want, LaMarcus Aldridge, and the rest of their roster is filled with players that other teams might take, but no one that another team would ever trade for. And then he he went on to disparage me and say that I'll probably skip over this to talk about the Wizards. But give me your thoughts on Pop right now. Well, first of all, I want to do uh, something to pay tribute to Greg Popovich because I do not believe he should be coach of the year like the emailer suggests. But I do want to take a little walk down memory lane. This season, San Antonio, I don't believe they're going to win 50 games. Uh, it would take mm-hmm. a huge push, probably a Kawhi Leonard push for them to get to 50. Now, do you know the last year when there was at least a 66-game schedule, so throw out that 50-game lockout season in 1999, the right. last year San Antonio didn't win 50 games. Do you know what <laughs> year it was? I don't, but this is one of those annoying stats that Spurs fans throw out every April. So I, know, I think it's like 19 or 20 years or something. Yeah, 1996-97. Now, let me just give you some history on that year. Obviously, Bill Clinton was president. Uh, Atop the charts, can't nobody hold me down by Puff Daddy, you know, narrowly edging out the Spice Girls and Drew Hill. By the way, I think they're from Baltimore, right? That's kind of close to you. The top of the move, the uh, the top of the movie charts, Jerry Maguire and Liar Liar. And then in a big technological update, MP3s were invented. (laughs) So that's where we're at (laughs) in terms of the Spurs reign of dominance, right? So 
in terms of the Spurs roster construction, yeah, it's not a top heavy roster. Like his points kind of well taken. I think he's stretching in terms of which guys wouldn't get traded for by other teams, but they still go deep. They still play, you know, cohesive team basketball and it might not be the flashy names, but they still have plenty of worthy NBA players who would fit in in lots of other places. So I think they have overachieved this year, but I don't think that they have overachieved so much that Popovich should be viewed as, uh, you know, the number one coach of the year candidate. Uh, and I also think it would be really weird to give him uh, give him that award this year in basically the worst year of his 20-year coaching tenure. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, on the other hand, though, I would say that Popovich has deserved it in so many other years where the Spurs have won 55 or 60 games that I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, I do appreciate the Drew Hill nod from you. Uh, that really took me back. When I was growing up, they, they are from Baltimore, and when I was growing up, Drew Hill was on the radio constantly, and it wasn't until I went to college that I realized that Drew Hill was not nearly as famous uh, around the country as they were in D.C., but they had some hits back in the day, WPGC 95.5. But uh, moving on to the Spurs, or back to the Spurs, I think Pop, if if the Spurs somehow finish in, in third place in the West he deserves it and he should win it. Um, and I just don't think that they're going to get there. This week is actually like a pretty huge week for the Spurs. They have the Warriors coming to San Antonio on Thursday. On Saturday, they have OKC. They're at OKC. Monday, they're at Houston. And then they have a, a gimme game with the Magic uh, wedged in there. But then they host the Pelicans next Thursday. So, there's kind of a gauntlet here where I think we're going to learn a lot in the next week about what direction this Spurs season is going to go. Yeah, I have to nitpick with one of your points. It just is a current pet peeve of mine, this whole idea of the third seed in the Western Conference being this amazing accomplishment. Look, there's a warping effect going on right now because the gap between the top two and everybody else in the West is so big. And this dogfight is so deep from basically three to 10 that everyone yeah. thinks it's some like major accomplishment if you get the three seed. I mean, at this point, it's essentially a coin flip. Like the team That's a fair in point. the third That's seed really right point. now in, in Portland, they're on pace to win 49 games. Now, they may actually get above that because they've had a really nice winning streak here and there's so many teams tanking down the stretch that they may outperform their current winning percentage. But to me, if you're not winning 50 games, in the NBA, what are you doing? You know, you, you really should not have your main people up for awards if you're not above that 50-win threshold. Uh, that goes for Coach of the Year. That goes for MVP and, and right on down the list. So that, I think no, there's a little bit... That's completely fair. Yeah. And I also, I was thinking about that earlier in the day. Like, there's a good chance that whoever gets the third seed would then get upset in the first round of the playoffs. So it's not really... Uh, that important either way. Um, I just think like we can't overstate how trash the Spurs roster is right now. I mean, they're counting well. on like the ghost of Pau Gasol, Joffrey Laverne. I love DeJounte, but he's still like a year or two away from really mattering. Uh, Kyle Anderson, like these are their guys every night. And they, and like it, they, uh, they matched up with the Grizzlies earlier this week. And looking at the matchups, like they're not that much more talented than the Memphis Grizzlies right now. Granted, LaMarcus is great, but like it's it's an accomplishment for them to be in the thick of it right now. 
Yeah, it's a rough watch. But remember, let's not fall victim to the most uh, obvious way to misinterpret and misunderstand the Spurs. The whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. If you break down <laughs> sure. the sum of the parts, it's always going to not look as as amazing um, as the collective. So okay, good. Uh, we ha- good you know, job we, we just keep the message it- there. Yeah, no, just keep that in mind because it, it applies when the Spurs are winning 60-plus games and it applies when they're winning 45. I mean, that's sort of a universal uh, lesson of the Spurs dogma. Okay, so more generally then, who is your leader in the coach of the year race right now? I, th- I mean, I don't think it's too early to start picking some favorites here. Um, well, I was on Brad Stevens at the start of the season. I think he's still an A-list candidate. I think he should be right there in that conversation. Uh, to me, he's got a really, really strong challenge, though, from Dwayne Casey in Toronto. What do you think? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think Stevens, the case for Stevens is basically that this season should have gone to hell and didn't. And he was able to not only salvage things, but excel and turn a bunch of 20 and 21 year old guys into one of the best defenses in in the league. And that makes sense to me. But I just think that what Dwayne Casey has done in Toronto is more impressive. And he's, I mean, the Raptors are playing at a higher level than the Celtics have. And Casey has worked with a bunch of young players himself up in Toronto and like guys like Jakob Pertle and, and Fred Van Vliet and those guys, and and even OG Ananobi, like he's been able to integrate them just as seamlessly, and they have been a huge part of the Raptors' success. And he's also like been able to sort of reinvent the offense that they've been using, and it's made a big difference. So I just think that like on like the aggregate of what both guys have accomplished, like I think that. Casey is just a little bit more impressive and part I'm partly biased because I just read Lee Jenkins's Dwayne Casey story this morning and I thought it was fantastic and we should talk more about that too but like I think it's between those two guys right now because I don't think D'Antoni's going to win it again after last year and uh yeah I think we should also show some love to Nate McMillan in this conversation I mean I think in terms of the guys who are overachieving with their talent like if I had to choose between Nate or Pop for a coach of the year vote I would probably go with Nate just because uh at the start of the season there was big time question marks what was he going to be able to play uh, you know adapt his style uh in this new job uh, you know, departing from his previous took, styles. Yeah, like it, it, there were, it was more than just questions. It was more like snickers. Like everyone around the league was like, well, what the hell are the Pacers thinking? Why did they hire him? Why, why do they think that he's the solution? And he's been pretty great. Like he's done a really good job. Yeah, and you know, in terms of his talent base, like I, he's he's way overachieved, arguably more than like San Antonio or maybe even New Orleans too. I think. If you're going to nitpick Dwayne Casey's uh, resume, it's that he's had essentially perfect health for all of his main players, where Boston's had guys in and out. They have similar records, and so maybe you say, okay, uh, you know, Stevens not only overcame the Hayward injury early, but also you know dealt with more in-season adversity. But I think you can absolutely give Casey the nod here as sort of a career achievement award. I mean, the guy's been on the hot seat yeah. for four straight years. The Raptors are <laughs> headed to most likely the the most successful season in their franchise history. Uh, You mentioned his overhaul in terms of style of play and also the use of the young guys on that second unit. As Lee's story pointed out, it's the best bench in the league in terms of net efficiency. So uh, that is different. You know, he's not riding Kyle Lowry into the ground like he did in previous seasons. 
Right. Uh, that's a lot of adjustments to make. And th- my favorite highlight, though, from Lee's story was actually the talk about the zone defense that the Mavericks played in the finals against, uh, you know, LeBron James's Heat and how that sort of bamboozled LeBron and it really ushered in some of the pace and space stuff. It's a great point. I mean, we, we always look at the offensive evolution side of, uh, you know, seven seconds or less leads to the uh, to, to the Heat and then to the Spurs and then to the Warriors. But there was yeah. a cause and effect going back and forth there. And Lee's story does a great job of just kind of digging into the X's and O's just enough to explain why teams have, you know, favored the three-pointer so much more. And then also how Dwayne Casey, uh, who sort of pioneered the defense that forced teams to do that, has now adopted those same lessons with his offense. And it's just a great read. Yeah, I mean, uh, that Mavericks title was so cool for so many different reasons. The, The defense, like, the defense that Sean Marion and Tyson Chandler played in that series remains unbelievable and one of the more impressive like playoff displays of of unsung heroes that I've seen in the last ten or fifteen years. Um, like because Tyson Chandler basically he was like Rudy Gobert in that series, and uh, and and Sean Marion was all over the place as well. And I, the, I actually, first of all, I did not know that D- Dwayne Casey was involved with that Mavericks team, so that was very cool to learn. Um, the other part about the story that I thought was really interesting and particularly timely was Dwayne Casey talking about like kind of the plight of black coaches and the struggles that they have graduating from like the assistant level to the, like the, the like player coordinator level to something more than that. And, uh, and it's happening at a time when like you look around the NCAA, a lot of these assistant coaches are basically taking the charges for their head coaches. Um, and the same thing happened to Dwayne Casey, where like he he was basically exiled from college basketball because of a scandal where he allegedly sent $1,000 to Chris Mills. And uh, <clears throat> it was just really cool to get his perspective on how that world works and why it doesn't work. And as we can see, like 20 years after Dwayne Casey left Kentucky, there are still some fundamental issues that need to be addressed in terms of black coaches. No doubt. If people are interested in that topic, check out Woj's podcast with Dwayne Casey. He recorded it around the All-Star break because Casey was one of the All-Star coaches. He goes into more about the stereotyping that he's faced throughout his career. It's very interesting. Hey, before we move on in terms of Coach of the Year candidates, also, if the Clippers made the playoffs, I think Doc's got to get some consideration there as well. I mean, I'm again, not for first place, but I think he would be no, you know, a top three type candidate. I appreciate you candidate. for bringing this up. I appreciate it because I was watching, I guess it was Clippers uh, Nuggets last week, and they panned to the Clippers bench. I had heard some Doc Coach of the Year buzz like building over the last few weeks, and I thought it was ridiculous. But when you look at the guys that he's working with every night, I mean, for them to even be like moderately relevant this year is a massive victory. Uh, like they panned to the bench, and it was like Austin Rivers, Montrez Harrell, Sam Decker, and like a couple other guys. I mean, he's done a phenomenal job, and like I, you're right that he can't win it because there are too many other deserving guys. Like Nate McMill- Nick- Nate McMillan definitely deserves. Um, more love than he's gotten, uh, especially because of the grief he took like 18 months ago when he was hired. But Doc Rivers, man, like he he deserves he deserves some respect because he's another guy who's taken all kinds of shit over the last couple years. 
Yeah, I mean, the Clippers jersey pad should be men's warehouse, given how many guys are in street clothes every single night. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> absolutely so ridiculous. Great, great talk radio line there. I appreciate it. That's what I'm here for. Uh, we had a question about Brad Stevens, though, too, right? Because we, we yes. sort of put him into this Coach of the Year conversation. I feel like he was the early favorite. If I was a Celtics fan, I would be very annoyed that everyone was ready to give him the award in December and now he's in this dogfight with like four other candidates who we mentioned. Uh, at the same time, I think that's the state of the race. Yeah. So Steven asks, how should we evaluate a free agent after they leave a Brad Stevens team? We've seen players like Evan Turner suck before coming to Boston, excel in his role with the Celtics, and then get overpaid. We've seen Isaiah Thomas go from sixth man to superstar, then back to sixth man within five to six months of being traded. We've seen Jay Crowder go to whatever he is now after leaving. So how do we properly evaluate a player like Marcus Smart or Terry Rozier as they head into free agency? Um, it's a pretty good question. To, to answer what you were just talking about beforehand, if I were a Celtics fan, I would be so happy to have Brad Stevens that I would not care what the rest of the country thought because he is just so valuable. He's like He's maybe one of the only two or three coaches that is more valuable than than most players in the NBA because of his ability to maximize guys like Evan Turner and Jay Crowder. And he's been so important to the to the rebuild where they've been able to sort of like fake their way through being a good team to the point that now they're almost a good team. Like when Hayward comes back, they've just got they're gonna be pretty loaded. Um but it's a this this is kind of like his thing. He's sort of like a sorcerer and my answer to this question is don't pay Marcus Smart. Don't pay Terry Rozier. Like beware of any like overrated Celtics free agent who's about to hit free agency. Well, I'm glad that I got my Brad Stevens praise in before this question. Cause reading this question, come on, Steven, like you're going just a little too far here. Like we're going to give Brad Stevens credit for Neil O'Shea's terrible decision to overpay Evan Turner, which was called out by everybody on day one. We're going to give okay. Brad Stevens credit for <laughs> ripping Isaiah Thomas's hip and like, you know, making his career go sideways. We're going to give Brad Stevens credit for LeBron not being able to incorporate Jay Crowder to his full abilities. I think we need to pump the brakes slightly on that. I agree in general, Brad Stevens is better at constructing quality, you know, in, in some cases, excellent five-man groups that make the most of every single piece, covering up players' weaknesses, you know, highlighting players' strengths. There's no question yes. about it. But some of these examples, we're taking them to the extreme. I mean, this guy's not a complete sorcerer. He's only like half a sorcerer. That's, That's all fair. And the players themselves deserve a ton of credit too. I just think, like you said, Stevens is is really good at highlighting strengths while covering weaknesses. Um, but your point is well taken. We don't need to overstate it too much. Um, should we move on to the Cavs here? Well, I would just say this about Marcus Smart. I think he's going to be getting a lot less money this summer than he expected. That's probably right. Uh, if I were him, this is advice I've given to other guys in the past. Like, Remember what... Uh, kind of success Boston set up for you. You know, don't take that for granted. Like if you're going to chase the money, if someone does decide to come along and sort of overpay for your services, like remember who you are, remember your glaring holes and remember how much work it took to kind of get your game where it is right now in sort of a functional environment. And don't take Boston's shot at success and winning for granted because, uh, you know, your career could go a lot of different ways. So I, I guess if I was advising Marcus Smart, I'd say, uh, you know, hope that Boston comes with a respectful offer and take it. That's probably in your best interest. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the um, 
it's been overlooked, but because a lot of people have focused on on Nerland's Noel, but Marcus Smart, I think, made a pretty big mistake not taking whatever the Celtics were offering in October or September when they were talking about uh, a, an extension. Because you look at it now, look across the league, like he, I, I, it was reported that he was offered close to ten million dollars a year for four years, and. Um, that's not great, and I understand if you're coming off the summers of 2016 and, and looking at like what other comparable guys have gotten, I, I could see how you would take that as disrespect. But basically, his agent got that offer and said, no, we're not signing this, and told the Celtics publicly, you will regret this next summer. And I don't know if they're going to regret it. I don't know if the market is really going to be there for Marcus Smart. I think he might get paid because the Celtics will need to have like some sizable salary that they can trade if they're trying to like package him for a, a superstar. But, uh, but it's, it's one of those things that like hindsight has not been kind to that, that decision. I believe Jimmy Butler was the first one in recent years to say, I'm going to bet on myself heading towards free agency. And that worked for him. And betting on himself, though, is a movement that is going to go down in flames here pretty hard for lots of different guys who tried the same approach, because uh, a lot of those bets are going to backfire <coughs> simply because of the salary structure that we've laid out before with the rise of the the cap and then all the money drying up. Yeah, and it's rough because I do really like his game, but you just you can't put him on like the Nuggets and expect it expect him to be as valuable. But um, but you're right, Boston is a good spot for him, and I hope that he he lands back there because again he's he's so much fun to root against on the Celtics. Moving on, Jake says it's just one game, but the Cavs need to permanently start Larry Nance and relegate Tristan Thompson when Kevin Love comes back. A starting five of George Hill, J.R. Smith, LeBron, Kevin Love, and Larry Nance seems like the best option for a deep playoff run. And I agree with this. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I mean, obviously it's pretty early, but almost every time I've seen Tristan Thompson play this year, he's been underwhelming. The only thing that I would add to this email is that I would also take J.R. Smith out of the starting lineup as well because I think like everybody everyone keeps looking up and saying man the Cavs can't guard anybody and JR like I haven't watched him that closely but I have a, a suspicion that he is a big part part of the problem on defense as well yeah, I mean, I think the blessing in disguise for Jake and Cavs fans is that it's not going to only be one game where Larry Nance is going to have to start or play that role because, you know, Tristan's going to miss a couple weeks here with an ankle injury. So I don't know when he sent this email, but you're going to have a sizable chunk of game action and lots of minutes to sort of view how Nance does in that starting lineup. And I think from yeah. that standpoint, uh, <laughs> you don't have a choice here. So you might as well just evaluate it in two weeks once you see how he fares. Uh, he's been really solid in terms of one of the new additions for Cleveland. And so I, I can definitely see where he's going. In terms of Tristan, he just hasn't really seemed right for a lot of the year, like you said. I mean, he's banged up in and out of the lineup. Uh, that can hold you back when you're a player like him who sort of needs uh, every ounce of quickness that he has to do the things defensively that they ask him to do in terms of, you know, covering ground on the perimeter and, and uh, you know, being energetic on the defensive board. So if you're banged up in any way, that makes those jobs uh, a lot harder. Uh, so I'd say just TB, TBD. We're going to know in a couple weeks here. Yeah, I would say so far, Larry Nance in Cleveland has been a 
big win for like league pass dorks who liked Larry Nance way too much on the Lakers the last two years. And then when he went to Cleveland, we were all like, Larry Nance is a valuable piece and can really help LeBron James. And it turns out like he, it does seem like he's the most valuable piece they got at the trade deadline. And he just makes them look so much more dynamic. And like, he's, he's really injected like all kinds of life into the Cavs. Whereas like George Hill, there's still a lot of games where he just looks kind of old. And I mean, he's, he's not moving the needle that much, but I think Larry Nance does. So I'm excited to have him involved. I think we probably need a little bit more time to really evaluate the Cavs before the playoffs, uh, but they've definitely looked a little shakier the last two weeks. Yeah, and you know it's so tricky because Love's still out, so you're you're missing yeah. that variable. Now Thompson's out. You know, question mark in terms of J.R. Smith. You know, you mentioned like his defensive effort. Well, I guarantee you he's going to be playing harder in the playoffs than he's playing for the last three months, right? Like there's. There's really no doubt about that. They have gotten up for the big matchup, so you realize that they're still sort of submarining what their you know their potential is on sort of a night to night basis. You know whether it's through motivation issues or just kind of pacing themselves. So I'm not terribly concerned about Cleveland, although they've been pretty choppy, like you mentioned here over the last two weeks. Uh, but I think we just need to wait on it. You know I don't think that yeah. they have the super duper high ceiling, um, but I think. To me, they're still the team to beat in the East, as I keep saying for the last three years running. <laughs> You've stuck to it. You've stuck to it. It looked like it, it, it may pay off. I just don't want to do the like massive swing from week to week on the Cavs because you really could because they, they have nights where they just look awful and then they beat the Pistons by 20. And then like we, we were getting uh, emails from Cavs fans being like, the Cavs are back, like, I just, we should all just take a breath and see what happens. I will say Larry Nance will make them more fun than they would have been. Uh, but Senator Batman says, Dear Open Floor, what is even more likely to leave you star-stricken and dazzled by reflected fame than chatting with Kiki Vandaway's brother at the All-Star Game? Well, I'll tell you. Selling raffle tickets to Pat Connaughton's aunt at a Blazers game. And, wow. And then he, go, he goes into an extended story about selling tickets to Pat Connaughton's aunt, who apparently has a thick mass hole accent, which I appreciate. And then he adds, okay, so can we get some quick thoughts on the Blazers? They've now won seven straight. Dame is doing his two-week MVP impression. They're in third for the moment. And yet I want to be more excited than I actually am. What do you think? Well, I think the reason why he's not more excited is because of that warping effect that I mentioned earlier, where the teams in this 3-10 to 10 pack, which are currently led by the Blazers, are all good, arguably very good, but not truly great. And the gap between the Por- Portland's like projected 49 wins right now and the Warriors and the Rockets' projected wins is like basically 15 wins. I mean, both those other teams are projected to win like 64-plus, right? That's yeah. a huge gap, and that's the kind of thing where you realize if your team did survive this dogfight, make it to the Western Conference Finals somehow, or or the second round, and to face one of those teams, I mean, you're going in there kind of hoping to make it a five, maybe a six-game series, and so I think that's why there might not be that pure elation that usually comes with being like a three-seed in the West when you're a team like Portland. Uh, right. At the same time, though... Uh, Damian Lillard probably heard open floor an episode or two ago where I said he was only like a 30% three-point shooter in the clutch and tried to make up for it completely in last night's game against the Lakers where he basically hits four consecutive three-pointers down the stretch or something ridiculous (laughs) like that. Uh, He is 
peaking at the right time. He's done this previously, uh, but it's also another lesson, I think, uh, in terms of you know the, the recency effect because yeah. a lot of these teams have just not been able to maintain that high level of play like the Blazers are playing currently over the course of the entire season. And I think probably some of Senator Batman's trepidation or wariness is coming from the fact that he remembers some of the uglier moments early in the season and realizes if if Dame starts to go cold uh, or you know he's just not red hot like he has been, uh, the team looks a lot different. I love that we've created a forum where you can sincerely address Senator Batman. Um, it's great. It's a great thing we've built here. Uh, but yes, <laughs> yeah. I have I have three thoughts on the Blazers. Okay, number one, we this is something that like you elitists from the Western Conference allege fairly often that there's an East Coast bias. I really do think that East Coast bias is real when it comes to Damian Lillard because. If he were having the last couple weeks that he had in like Boston or New York or really like any major market in the Eastern Conference, people would be losing their mind because there there have been a couple games where he's just like gone nuts down the stretch and it's been so awesome and it's not nearly the story that it should be. Yeah, you guys would have books called Lil Sanity or something silly <laughs> exactly, like that. Exactly, you know? exactly. It would be Lil Sanity all over again. Um, but the other two, the other two thoughts are: number one, uh, I thought about the Blazers when I was thinking about the third seed that was going to lose in the first round. I was thinking about the Blazers, and I feel bad Ooh. about that. Um, oh. But it is you're, br- you're breaking of- hearts out here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that they're awesome and that they should enjoy this while it lasts. It feels like the Blazers have had the same season for the last three years now where they're kind of like so-so out of the gate. People start to worry and wring their hands and then Damian Lillard comes out of the All-Star break and it's just awesome. And that's fun. I understand where Senator Batman is coming from on this one where he's not quite as excited as he feels like he should be because like... They've kind of been on this treadmill for a while here, um, and I don't blame Blazers fans for getting a little restless. Uh, and the last thing I was going to say is it's awesome to see Pat Connaughton still in the mix for them. He's someone that I loved in the draft, and uh, and he's been like a, a fairly reliable rotation player for the Blazers, which could be a red flag for the bigger picture, but he's been good. Yeah, well, another red flag is not everyone shares Senator Batman's, uh, you know, uh, cautious approach because I was reading these glowing reports about Zach Collins' amazing play and, like, he had a career-high 12, 12 points. It's like, guys, Dude, can we just— I saw that, too. I saw that, too. I think it was—it may have been the Blazers' official account but or it may have been a beat writer being, like— Zach Collins with a night to remember, and I I looked I looked it up because I was thinking about picking him up for fantasy. I was like, it must be like twenty four <laughs> and twelve or whatever. He had twelve points and five rebounds. Uh, but can, congrats can I, can to him add, for seeing the floor. Oh no doubt. Uh, let me add one final thing in terms of the warping effect at play here. Remember, with teams like the Blazers who are currently on this huge winning streak. Uh, there are a lot of wins to be had because 10 teams in the NBA are not trying and they're all on massive losing streaks, right? So 
I mean, it's worse than usual this season. Teams that you know typically might close hard or have more talent than the opposition are going to be racking up more winning streaks than you would expect this year because there's a lot of soft wins out there over the next six weeks. So, uh, you know, for example, as we speak right now, the Pelicans of all teams are on an eight-game winning streak. Uh, Houston is on a 15-game winning streak. It's like their second of the year that, that that's that long. The Warriors yeah. have been making noise about how they want to close the season on like a 20-plus game winning streak. That's like a, a legitimate goal they have. <laughs> and they could. And they, haven't, <laughs> yeah, they could, and they haven't even really been trying, right? So let's keep some of the winning streak stuff in context as well here uh, just because of the pitiful nature of the Adam Silver tank tour, which we laid out last week. Yeah, well, and I, it's funny because I was thinking about this as well um, because I, I like I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite ready to own this take, but I really have a feeling that the Thunder could miss the playoffs. Um, oh. like I, I, I want to pick it. I want to. I want to go there, but I'm not quite ready. And one of the reasons I'm not is because the Thunder host the Rockets tonight. I don't like their chances in that game. And this is running on Wednesday, so listeners will already know what's happened. But um, but they have the from there they have the Suns, the Spurs, which is another tough game. But then they've got the Kings, the Hawks. Like I think that there might be enough easy wins for the Thunder to get in, and um, and then once they're in, I, I actually will like their chances more. It's just night to night without Roberson, they've been like worse than people realize i mean they barely beat the mavericks last week and people should be more worried than they than they have been do you remember the podcaster at the beginning of the season who was questioning their depth concerns and also questioning the fit of their big three together i can't quite remember who that was i actually do remember that and you know what man the the full story of that podcast is that that was like the day after the Carmelo trade where you called me and were like, we need to do an emergency podcast after the Carmelo trade. And I didn't want to be the guy who came on and was like, I mean, what what difference does this really make? Like, obviously, obviously the Thunder are not going to win anything <laughs> that matters. So I was trying to like fake my way through some enthusiasm while you like sold their stock hard. And it's true that long term, you were definitely right about the Thunder. Okay, just making sure. Don't worry, Thunder fans. <laughs> if any of you are still listening, I do have some praise for one of your players later on. All right, good. Well, bef- we we should move on to the Sixers. But before we do, it is my favorite time of the podcast. It's time to talk about mattresses and stretching. Everyone knows how important stretching is before a big game. Well, guess what? Mattress Firm is here to stretch your budget. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true slam dunk. Mattress Firm is the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite 3&D wing. So go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. Like Gilbert Arenas and Larry Hughes, score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. 
Talk about a one-two punch, Andrew, like Dwayne Casey and Brad Stevens in the Coach of the Year race, mattressfirm.com <laughs> slash podcast. Now let's get back to it. Wow, way to keep it topical. Um, all right, getting back to it. Srikar says, I am typing this email during halftime of 76ers Bucks. The, the things that I'm seeing from Philly as a non-76ers fan just scare the hell out of me. There was just a wild assist from Ben Simmons to J.J. Redick in the second quarter, and then a Eurostep plus assist by Embiid that just blew my mind. Boris Dirk compared, or not Boris Dirk, uh, <laughs> Doris Burke compared the Simmons play to Nick Foles at a wide receiver, which was very, very apt. The vision and the ability to execute the play is just incredible. Same with Embiid's assist. The effortlessness is so unreal from these guys. As a rival fan, it's downright scary to think of how good the Sixers can be. Now, this email is hilarious because the Sixers promptly came out from halftime and blew a 20-point lead to the Bucks in the third quarter like went scoreless for about eight minutes, looked like they had no idea what they were doing. And it weirdly made me love the Sixers more than ever. Uh, and I wrote about them this week. And in part because I wrote about some of their flaws, which are reasons to not necessarily trust them to like make a deep run, but, uh, but are reasons to, to appreciate this because I do think like everything he said is right. And that like long-term the whole league should be freaked out by what Philly can do. Uh, but watching them in this like sort of transition year as they transition to being good and being taken seriously is, is relentlessly entertaining because they really are the team that can go up 25. And even when they were up 20 in the first half, I had no doubt that it was going to be a close game toward the end. Uh, and so it's just kind of always an adventure with them. Yeah, this email was hilarious for a lot of reasons. First of all, I can't tell if Srikar screwed up Boris Dirk and Doris Burke or if he just put that in <laughs> on purpose. Maybe he got autocorrected or maybe he put that in on purpose just to see if you would read whatever yeah, was on the please teleprompter. Please don't start you know? doing that, listeners, because I will screw it up. I promise you. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like the kind of name you would use when you check it to a hotel, you know, like a fake name, or maybe <laughs> Boris Dirk is like her undercover, you know, Russian uh, uh, CIA asset name or something. But in terms of his email, you know, I was watching that game. You know, I saw some really scary things in that game too, Andrew. You know what they were? What? Chris Middleton's clutch steals and deflections down the stretch. Just brilliant <laughs> defense. Doesn't get talked about enough. Really you know helped Milwaukee we don't, bring we that, don't that win into, home. We don't have to get into Chris Middleton right now, but there is a lot of angst over Middleton on Bucks Twitter currently. So I wouldn't toot your horn too loudly on that one. Oh, I'm not. I'm just saying. I know there was hundreds of Sixers fans in the building watching that game up close, in person, you know, as part of uh, the bus movement uh, from Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. And That's why they were I having watching, a really, yeah. look, they were having a really good time booing Tony Snell because Brogdon wasn't playing, but they were awful quiet when Middleton was, you know, stepping in <laughs> front of those passing lanes, deflecting the ball into the open court and just playing, you know, sound, fundamental defense. Uh, the other scary thing from that game was Giannis was the best player on the court, period. <laughs> I mean, he, he was. And, I don't know yeah. if that's because Embiid ran out of, uh, you know, ran out of juice. You know, he started kind of uh, just chucking up three pointers at, at some point in that game. He wasn't shooting the ball very well, and he could have just been fatigued. I mean, who knows? But that was a huge win for the Bucks. They really needed that. They haven't been playing very well, and that was an entertaining game both ways. I, I guess if the takeaway from Streetcar is, you know, Philly is scary. You know, their future is still pretty scary. I would say 
the possibilities between those two teams are frightening on both sides. I mean, I cannot wait to watch these teams play for the next three or four years, assuming all the key pieces uh, stay in place. Yeah. Uh, to echo what you said about rights to Ricky Sanchez, <clears throat> that's one of the reasons I was watching the game. And they made the game a lot more fun. It was almost like like trying to figure out who was cheering because I, the Bucks fans then got more into it because of the presence of Sixers fans. And it was like hearing a like European soccer game where there was just this like din in the background the entire game because people were loud for most of the time. And uh, it was fun to watch. It's really cool that they do that. And <laughs> It's really weird. Really cool and really weird is sort of like the trademark for rights to Ricky Sanchez. Um, so congrats to those guys for pulling it off. Uh, and I kind of agree with you. I'm beginning to to worry more about the Bucks right now. Like the just the way that team is constructed isn't really working. It's kind of seems like some of their guys are running out of gas. You're right that Embiid was definitely gassed uh, in the second half of that that Sixers game. And I also think that like. For the Sixers, the the Simmons stuff is still an issue. Like some of the some of the stretches they have where their offense just completely breaks down, is, it shouldn't be that surprising. Like that's what happens when you have a point guard who refuses to shoot. And I think that like there are elements of that team that look disjointed because it's it Simmons his game is still a little bit limited right now, and uh, that's one of the things that's going to be really interesting to watch going forward. I think I like their future a little bit more though because they have room to build whereas the 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 Bucks seem like they're kind of locked into this roster that still isn't quite there yet. And I don't know whether a coaching change could could do it and and help take them to another level next year, but uh I just haven't liked what I've seen from them for like the past month or so. I think you make a good point with Simmons. When the Sixers look their prettiest and their most aesthetically pleasing, it's because of Ben Simmons. When they look their yeah. choppiest and most uneven and turnover prone, it's usually because of Ben Simmons. So that's a great point. In terms of the Bucks, now you know I've charted this Giannis Inc. thing on the money for the last six <laughs> months, right? Like yes, I said, absolutely. he's going ha- to have to coach kill, right? I mean, I, I, you know, we said that was the next step for Giannis. He had to get rid of Jason Kidd, and you know, maybe it didn't happen exactly like that, but Kidd's not there anymore. He sure. got into the shouting match with the assistant coach. You know, we saw that coming from a mile away. Andrew, I'm here to tell you the next step in Giannis's superstar progression towards Michael Jordan, LeBron James level. Are you ready for it? I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> He's going to have to either throw the basketball or choke a teammate over a lack of defensive effort. (laughs) There's going to be some player-on-player confrontation where Giannis just says, enough is enough with the defensive breakdowns that aren't his fault. I've tried to cover up for you guys play after play. You're making the same silly mistakes over and over, and there's going to be a snap moment. Now, I don't know if it comes down the stretch of this season or in the playoffs, but there will be that aggressive uh, you know, Jordan or LeBron style shouting at one of his teammates over failure that snaps everybody else to attention and gets them to lock in defensively. Until that happens, the Bucks are going nowhere. They're just not disciplined and cohesive enough defensively to kind of get over the hump this year. So it's on Giannis. And, you know, we're not encouraging violence here. We never encourage <laughs> yeah, be violence clear about here. That. But we don't want Giannis to spree well anyone. No, no, it doesn't have to go that far. I'm just saying there is going to be a moment, we've seen it time and time again, where the very best players just get sick and just lose it over the shortcomings of their lesser teammates. And Giannis is right on that track. He's tracking perfectly towards that here over the next four months.
Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll keep an eye out for a Giannis attack on a teammate. <laughs> we'll see how Look, it goes. I'm not. Come on. I'm. It's hyperbole. You know what I'm saying. No, There's no, going to no. be. You're thinking outside the box here, and that's what Giannis Inc. is all about. So I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really excited to watch both of those teams because, and I wrote about this with the Sixers to to some degree. Like the thing I do really like about both team Giannis and uh, and then team process is that they don't look the way most of the other good teams in the NBA look and part of that is probably holding them back from being great uh but i like they pl- they are playing with a completely different playbook than like the Celtics, the Rockets, the the Cavs who are basically just like launching 33s every game um, and it's fun to watch them try to make it work that way. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think both, both of them will be scary in the playoffs. Um, but they are, are obviously both vulnerable too. No question. All right. Well, let's move on to Kyle who says how unicorny are the unicorns really? People usually mention their ability to shoot from three, but for example, Joel Embiid is shooting 33% from three for his career. Anthony Davis is shooting 30%. Jokic only shoots 35. Chris Stapps is at 36. And Cat leads the group at 38%. Only Cat is a really is really a good shooter from three. Chris Stapps is average and the rest are below average. This is all fine and good, but I think we make a bigger deal out of it than we should. Do we really think that if Hakeem was in the in this three-point shooting era, he wouldn't be able to hit 30% of his shots from three? Same with Tim Duncan, Garnett, or even Sean Kemp. Marcus Gasol went from shooting 18% the first eight years of his career to shooting it better than half the unicorns on this list, 36%. What do you? What's your reaction to all this? Uh. There's a lot of things that we kind of need to correct here. So first of all, young players are not going to shoot the three-pointers that well, and they're more likely to improve you know, as they go along. So saying that Kristaps Porzingis uh, is not a good three-point shooter because he shoots career 36%, I, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, this season, he's shooting you know, almost 40% on threes, 39%. And the key variable that he's sort of leaving out here is volume. Volume really matters when it comes to three-point shooting. It's one thing to be a 37% three-point shooter and only take one or two a game. That's kind of why I've been making fun of DeMar DeRozan and all the people who are saying, oh, he's such a great three-point shooter now. Well, you really need to take a lot of them to really be a true impact three-point guy to have defenses, you know, respect your shot every time to to cover you and to create the space. That's Uh, a good point. To be a real weapon, you have to take a lot of threes. And so... Guys like Porzingis who are taking five a game, Cousins takes more than six per game, Embiid's taking more than three per game, Towns takes more than three per game. Uh, you know, eventually you would want to see all the unicorns getting there to the point where they're shooting like five threes a game. And some of those guys are just working up towards that. Um, the other thing I'd say is uh, the three-pointers are not just about the points that you shoot from the threes. It's about the points you create by drawing attention Spacing. away from other players by mm-hmm. the space, as you just mentioned, uh, but also just by the threat of it. You know, guys having to, you know, consider that you might do that. So now that opens up other elements of your offensive game. And uh, that's why we harp on a guy like Porzingis to say, hey, look, he could shoot the three and we know he can put the ball on the deck when, when people close out on him and go one-on-one and attack, but he needs to learn how to pass out of that situation too. So he really becomes the best player he can be. Uh 
his ability to create offense from the pass would be significantly less if he didn't have that three-point shot. He'd just be that much easier to guard and, and you wouldn't have to respect him. So it, it adds a whole different dimension. So I, I think Kyle's question is, is there too much hype around this unicorn idea? I think in theory, there have been big men who are very skilled going back 30 years, no question about it, but they were not shooting threes in volume like this, uh, number one, and the game was not set up to allow them to do that, so we could see like the full breadth of their skills, uh, and that's number two. So I don't think the unicorns are getting too much hype uh, at all. I think we might prioritize, when we're looking at their skill set, it's easier to say, oh, wow, like Joel Embiid, he's comfortable shooting three-pointers. Uh, yeah. That's easier for casual fans to see rather than how good he is at protecting the paint or dissuading attacks, you know, into the you know drives and and shots around the basket. Uh, but the idea of the unicorn is not just that they're three point shooters; they can do all sorts of different things. And so, for that reason, I don't think they're overhyped. Well, I am going to disagree a little bit because I think that Kyle makes a great point here. I think his point is essentially that big men shooting threes is not as revolutionary as it seems or as it's been advertised. And I think that's probably true. Like Hakeem absolutely could have shot threes if, if that's what the NBA called for at that point. And same with Duncan definitely could have. Um, And I think that there is a legitimate question to be asked about how valuable it is for someone like Embiid to shoot threes as opposed to being in the post and certainly like I think I think Embiid strikes a little bit better of a balance but I think Carl Towns is a guy who as as the emailer mentioned like is the best shooter of this group but I think he's also more valuable in the post because he's also a really good passer and uh and he's spent a lot of time these first few years in Minnesota just sort of like bouncing around on the perimeter where like he's a good shooter but he's not really like particularly dangerous um and I think if we're looking for the revolutionary skill that sets some of the unicorny unicorns apart, I, I'm the the further we get into this era, the more I'm convinced that it's actually ball handling at seven feet that really sets guys apart. I mean, that's what you see with Giannis. That's what you see with Ben Simmons. That's what you see with Durant. And I think those are the guys who are, are truly from another planet. Um, whereas like, Embiid being able to shoot threes like doesn't really change the game that much. I think what changes the game for Embiid is that he's like unbelievable around the rim. He's got incredible footwork and he's amazing on defense. And um, and Anthony Davis is sort of in between Embiid and Durant, but he's absolutely as outrageous as those guys. So so I do think that like the way we talk about this is going to change over the next five years. It's not going to just be like, Oh my God, that guy can shoot threes. He should be on the perimeter. Like we may see a, 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 a shift in the way teams play some of these unicorns where like it, it's acknowledged that they all need to be able to shoot threes and, and need to be able to be a, a little bit comfortable on the perimeter. But like, it's probably better for some of these teams to have their big guys down low. Uh, I, I would disagree with the down low part and I, your point is well taken on the ball handling. I mean, that's for sure an evolutionary development, especially among, uh, guys who, you know, probably would have been bigs in a previous era, like Kevin Durant, but are just, you know, playing their whole careers on the perimeter, uh, because they have that ball handling ability for a guy like towns, uh, 
it's not just that he can shoot three-pointers. It's that when he's out there on the three-point line and he pump fakes you, you have to run out to him. And now he can put the ball on the deck with that ball handling ability and create really good offensive opportunities for himself. Or when the defensive uh, defense collapse, he can kick out, right? And That's true. having players who can use that space and to find more efficient looks is always going to be a better uh, option than trying to post somebody up because what happens when you post up lots of turnovers opportunities for offensive fouls bad things happen the pace slows down uh, the ball doesn't move it sticks I mean sort of the math has really strongly weighed in uh, against the post up here over the last you know five six seven years even for the elite post up players um, generally that's, if you're doing more than point. just put if you're doing more than just put back dunking uh, there is a lot of benefit to moving your players, just physically moving them away from the basket so that they can do all the amazing things one-on-one that they're capable of doing. But what about some of the guys who are who are really good rebounders who are sort of marginalized on the perimeter and then you, you take that skill off the table? Like I, I'm not advocating yeah. for Tibbs to suddenly start like feeding the post 20 times a game, but I think that like it, it doesn't help as much when, when like... Carl Towns is on the foul line extended half the time. Look, Minnesota's got the number three offense in the league right now. So they're doing something right with how they use Carl Anthony Towns. Now, I think the Embiid example is a little bit more interesting because there is a difference between being able to be a three-point shooter and being a three-point jacker. And to me, Embiid has kind of fallen (laughs) this season more towards that jacking, you know, type, uh, you know, well, uh, and also deployment. Embiid is, is and, less dynamic off the dribble than than Towns or even Porzingis. I, I think he he can put it on the on the floor, but probably shouldn't because of some of the injury concerns. And like I, Philly's better off with him playing it safe in some of those situations. Yeah, I would scale back his three-point attempts a little bit uh, until he, shoot, he proves he can shoot at a higher percentage. And I also think that at his best, he's a really dangerous passer, even from the post. And everything yeah. I mentioned about the post being less efficient, uh, when you have a guy who can see over the defense against anyone and he has the timing on the passes to hit cutters and so forth, that's a huge weapon. And we're definitely going to see that a lot in the playoffs. I think you're going to see them playing through him uh, trying to get teams into foul trouble, uh, you know, trying to make use of his size and athleticism around the basket more than you know having him be out on the perimeter. But yeah. the fact that he can shoot it if he needs to, to me, it qualifies him as a unicorn. I, I mean, and I don't think that's too much hype. Uh, but in general, for these other guys, like when you look at uh, DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis uh, in New Orleans, I mean, a big part of the reason why they're putting up such insane numbers in Cousins, obviously, before the injury, was because they're allowed to play on islands constantly, one-on-one against <laughs> defenders, not being bogged down in the post. And to me, that's the smarter way to play. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely laid out the conventional wisdom as it exists right now. And I'm I'm just curious as to, as to how it will evolve. I think, because uh, uh, like Cat is another really good passer and putting him even at the foul line might be more helpful. Um, but you're, you're right that the Wolves are doing just fine. And... Uh, Let's move on, though, uh, to just just a broad question. Looking for some takes here. Charles from Australia says, who is currently the most underrated player in the NBA? Joe Ingles? Um, I appreciate him for throwing out Ingles, his, his Australian hero. Who do, you, do you have any nomination here? Yeah, so I went through the All-Star votes. I think the two most underrated players by All-Star vote were Jimmy Butler and Damian Lillard. Um, okay. 
just because they were they, they barely registered, you know, like they were almost just no namers. I mean, they're that far down the list. So from that standpoint, I guess the casual fan hasn't caught on to them. I have a really hard time with this question, though, because I understand like players who are properly rated by the advanced stats community. I, I don't know how much casual fans know of those players. So I don't really have a good way to gauge overrated, <laughs> underrated. And I know from you, don't you talk to I know people like, is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, when well, I also get the fantasy, you know, the fantasy perspective from you, so I think that right. has its own group of overrated underrated players. Some guys I came up with though, Steven Adams to me is is still underrated and Ooh, like when you're talking about one. Oklahoma City's big 3, isn't he definitely part of Oklahoma City's big 3? I mean, it's not mellow, that's for sure. If you had to pick one player, there's no question who you'd take. Yeah. Um Fre- Fred Van Vliet, to me, I think he's got to be in this conversation. <laughs> Kind of an obscure deep cut. Uh, the reason why I thought of him, though, was in that Instagram story you mentioned, like Kyle Lowry basically took a phone from an NBA social media <laughs> staffer just so he could shout out Fred Van Vliet and get him more followers on Instagram because nobody knew who he was. Uh, yeah. Also on that Raptors bench, Pascal. I'm a big Pascal guy. He just plays so hard and does lots of good stuff. Oh, by the way, on Van Vliet, efficient three-point shooter, really good assist to turnover ratio, just that exact guy you want coming off your bench in that role. Uh, a player we mentioned a few episodes ago, Clint Capella. I think he's probably still underrated by the the casual fan. I mean, he's really good both ways. Uh, and then uh, our favorite Brooklyn Nets emailers are always harping on Spencer Dinwiddie. He probably deserves to be in this conversation because no one's ever heard of him. And then yeah. one last guy who I think has had a nice season here. I don't think he's really rewritten his reputation necessarily but to me Tobias Harris has had a really nice season and he's continuing to play well after the trade I think he's slightly underrated by most people okay those are all good nominations I tend to think of this a little bit differently because you can always pick out overachieving role players who are technically underrated um and guys like Ingles guys like Fred Van Vliet but I think it's more fun to think of the stars who are underrated. And you threw out Jimmy Butler and Damian Lillard. But I think that they've been called underrated for so long that they're pretty properly rated at this point. I think most people appreciate how valuable Jimmy Butler has been in Minnesota. <clears throat> um, and last year, I would have said that Bradley Beal is the most underrated player in the NBA. But I think over the last 12 months, people have begun to appreciate him properly, in part thanks to my tireless advocacy. Uh, but thinking about it, I, I initially thought about Victor Oladipo, but he's another guy who, like so many people, are constantly lecturing you about how underrated Victor Oladipo is that I don't really think that he's still there. The guy I settled on, though, is our old friend, Chris Paul, because I think that he is currently playing at a top 10 in the NBA level. And, uh, and people are kind of like, he's not really on anybody's radar. People kind of talk about him like he's washed already. No, I agree hundred percent on Chris Paul. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think he has had the level of acclaim that basically every other player that we mentioned previously has not achieved. You know, he does have, like a stunt double for a, an insurance company, you know, his, his twin. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's, but he's if definitely you look, been overrated at times also, which complicates this. Yeah, and that you know that's why I'm saying it's kind of a weird spectrum. But, I mean, to me, he's been absolutely ridiculous, huge part of their engine. He's uh, fit in 
seamlessly. And if you look at like the the impact stats, he actually it's ranks number one in the entire league in real plus minus. Uh, and I think part of the reason why he's underrated was just because he was hurt in the season. So that kind of took away any credit he would receive. Uh, you know, he just got lost in heart and shadow, but he's been awesome. And, uh, you know, that's his whole reason why he left, why he took that huge gamble and not taking guaranteed money from the Clippers last summer has paid off brilliantly. Like it couldn't have paid off any better to this point. Uh, and I think, once they make the Western Conference Finals, assuming they do, I think there's going to be a big rush from a lot of people to kind of cover their tracks on the Chris Paul hating for the last five or six years. <laughs> and there's going to be a real big slurp party, you know, uh, to say, oh, yeah, you know, he was just a victim of bad circumstances and to kind of blame outside factors instead of blaming yeah. him. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because they haven't done it yet and they really do need to prove it this year. I mean, there's no excuses whatsoever. They need to make the Western Conference Finals. But if they do, I think his personal legacy is going to get rewritten in a big time way. Yeah, well, and I'm in a complicated spot because I've been like the number one Chris Paul fan and defender and apologist for the last four or five years. And yet uh, I'm now forced to support his Rockets campaign. And I it, like they're not fun. They're not that much fun to watch. Um but we're, we're going to talk more about the Rockets later in the week because we should go deeper there. The, the one question I have for you on Chris Paul and his bet, do you assume that there's already kind of a wink-wink uh, deal in place for Houston to pay him out this summer? Um, I would assume that they're going to take care of him, yeah. Uh, I mean, okay. barring some ca- catastrophe in the playoffs, I think that that would make a lot of sense. Um, because it's been mutually beneficial. Like he was on a team that did not fall apart when he got hurt, which was not the case in previous years. And he's fit in really well That's to true. the offense. Yeah. The other thing I'd say too, by the way, with Chris Paul though, and this is weird, despite the early season injury, like he still got more uh, all-star votes. And I, I hate to harp on this, but it's one way we can measure sort of a claim than either Lillard or Butler. Isn't that weird? Like he has... A, a fan base that's bigger than just diehards that are out there. And he's a kind of accumulated them. I don't know if they're banana boat, uh, you know, fans or, or exactly what it is, but he's got that group and there's going to be a lot of crowing from them. Uh, if he's able to be better and more reliable in late game postseason moments this year. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, look, if the Rockets have to win and advance the conference finals, then I hope they do it on the strength of, Chris Paul clutch heroics because he's definitely due. Um, let's run through a couple more questions before the podium here. Uh, these are, this is basically just hate mail. Brandon says, I can't help but say in a recent pod, you guys were super generic about hating on my Hornets. Treadmill of mediocrity Hornets is a direct quote from Dr. Sharp. I'd appreciate it if you guys would put some real thought into it next time. And I honestly, we owe you an apology, Brandon, because no, we, don't apologize. Like, Come I don't, on, don't, I don't apologize, really have, Andrew. <laughs> I, I have to be honest. There are a couple teams that I just don't watch and don't care about, and the Hornets are on that list. And so I don't have anything beyond generic uh, criticism to offer because I just can't really bring myself to care or watch the Hornets. I mean, this guy did like a control F on all of our podcasts to somehow find the one time we mentioned the Hornets. That was pretty Yeah, remarkable. but he was I nice mean, about it, though. He was nice about it. I guess. Look, I think the biggest story with the Hornets right now is their whole front office plan because Rich Cho, 
who I think started off doing a pretty solid job there, gave out a few regrettable contracts, and now has basically said, you know, they fired him months before they're actually going to fire him. They're just saying, like, look, we're not bringing you back. Peace. Uh, and the rumor is MJ is going back to that Tar Heels family to get Mitch Cup- Mitch Kupchak, which, you know, his the end of his Lakers tenure was not great. Uh, so I don't know if he's learned a bunch <laughs> of lessons about the modern NBA here in the last couple of years or exactly what the plan is there. But if I was a Hornets fan, I'd be worrying much less about what the two of us are saying or not saying about the Hornets. And I'd be worrying much more about the direction of the franchise under MJ and his Tar Heel buddies. Yes, that's definitely not a good sign for the future of the Hornets. And uh, I think uh, like a month ago, we were trying to apportion blame between Rich Cho and Michael Jordan. If Michael Jordan's going out to hire Mitch Kupchak, I think he officially now shoulders like 75% of the blame for how the last five years have played out, Um, particularly the Kaminsky pick, which like like, Justice Winslow is not going to be a superstar, but still remains indefensible process wise and especially if the celtics were offering three or four first round picks just like awful awful um and this is why we don't talk about the hornets because it always gets too dark uh but continuing on another complaint thomas says i was very disappointed to hear you guys bashing the pacers at the start of the last podcast from talking about how they might not make the playoffs to the downright hating on miles turner's potential later on in the program Yes, they did lose to the Mavs and Hawks on the road, but they bounced back nicely by beating the Bucks and the Wizards this week. The Pacers are better than the Wizards, full stop. This team has already surpassed their win projection. They have a star locked onto a reasonable term contract, unlike John Wall, and have a young potential star in Miles Turner. They have a much better long-term outlook than the Wiz. They don't openly hate each other. Their role players are not overpaid. And let's not forget that Bradley Beal's bones are still made of glass. Stop using the Pacers as a punchline. Um, I appreciate well, that. Well, first of all, look, it, there's no real great victory in beating the Wizards. Come on. <laughs> and nor is there a victory in having a brighter future than the Wizards because because of where things currently stand with John Wall. But yeah, absolutely. They, the, I will say this: the the Pacers are another team that's on my unofficial don't really care about list, and uh, I watched the. Oladipo performance in DC over the weekend and he is awesome um there's no question about it and then to go back and beat the Bucks the Bucks were I think coming off a back-to-back uh yeah because they had played the Sixers less impressive because the Bucks have been a little shaky but like they the Pacers are going to be a really tough out and they do deserve a lot of credit for how well they've played this year well I think I'm going to double down on the hate if that's all right Uh, (laughs) after my generic phrase there (laughs) Well, first thing I'd say is Nate McMillan deserves to be coach of the year candidate. No question about it. Very yeah. high on the list. At this point, I would have him no lower than third. That's positive. Victor Oladipo has shredded all the expectations that I had for him this season or really at any point over the, the length of his current contract. That's positive. Now, have we talked about the plexiglass principle uh, on this uh, open floor podcast before, we Andrew? Haven't. It's one of these stat concepts, which essentially says if a team drastically improves from year one to year two, completely surpassing expectations, uh, especially if it's a young team, the odds are that that team will fall back to earth a little bit in year three, 
rather mm-hmm. than continuing to improve in year three, right? So essentially, you're hitting this plexiglass ceiling and you're bouncing backwards a little bit. To me, the Indiana Pacers have all the hallmarks going into next year of a plexiglass principal team. We've seen it from other young teams, the Blazers a couple of years ago, the Bucks a few years ago. It's a very common phenomenon, not just in the NBA, but across all professional sports. Uh, a lot has gone right to fuel things this year. I think even Pacers fans would admit that. And the talent level accumulated on their roster still isn't that great. Once the secrets are out, once everyone's had the like, I'm going to prove who I am seasons in the NBA, once guys <laughs> shooting numbers regress a little bit back to where they've been uh, throughout their entire careers, the losses just stack up a little bit more quickly. So from that standpoint, I would say full salute on the Pacers season. I don't see them having much of a ceiling at all in the playoffs this year. And I think that they're probably going to come back to earth a little bit next year. Sorry, Indiana. Uh, my bad. Okay. I do have some real praise and also some real criticism to offer of the, of the Pacers. The praise, I would say that the team, all your points are are accurate and and fair and i think that there's reason to sort of temper the excitement for next year and even for the rest of this year however they will have cap space next year and they're not going to really sign anybody but they'll be in good shape to take on some bad deals um and potentially build through picks and oladipo is still pretty young and miles turner is still pretty young and so like there's some things that they can do they're more flexible than most of the teams who are in the middle of these conferences. And, uh, and I think that there, there's some room to get excited, not necessarily about next year, but like 2019, 2020, like they'll, they'll have something that they can do. Uh, in the meantime, I would say I just rereading that email. My, my first thought is that if the wizards actually, got the Pacers in the playoffs, I would be overjoyed and it would be like a five game series. So I'm definitely not worried about the Pacers with all due respect nice. to, um, to fair criticism of us. But uh, anyways, moving on to, we've got a couple podium questions. We had a lot of stuff that we didn't get to that we'll need to do later in the week, but podiums. Waz says, damn it, Golliver. I was 90 seconds into last week's pod and I had to email you because you decided to hate on of all things, the U.S. curling team from Duluth as not our best and brightest. Huh. Well, technically, if they're from Minnesota, there's a far, far greater chance that they are our best and brightest as Minnesota is the highest in ACT scores almost every year and never falls out of the top three. And I don't know how you rate best as it's subjective, but this year U.S. News rated Minnesota as the number two state. So Waz has a lot of pent-up aggression after our years of hating on Andy on uh not Andy Wiggins Andrew Wiggins and uh I don't blame (laughs) him for it (laughs) I don't blame him for it it's completely fair but uh you caught me completely off guard when you opened with curling last week so I'll let you take it from here well first of all I mean what are they ranked number two in Minnesota as a state snowfall I mean there's no way if we're ranking the states (laughs) objectively Minnesota is anywhere close to second that's number one but (laughs) we can we can put that to the side Waz and I hashed this out over email, Andrew. I'm happy to report, you know, much like 
I have license to kind of make fun of the Canadians because I am a quarter Canadian. I was able to play a trump card with Waz, and it's this. Okay. Last fall, I actually went to the Minnesota State Fair, which attracts hundreds of thousands of people every year. It is the most over-the-top event. Uh, it that actually does rank amazing. very near the top of the state fairs. I think actually Iowa ranks usually better than Minnesota. No, no shots at Minnesota here. Sorry, your state fair is not as good as <laughs> Iowa's. But uh, it is completely out of control. And when I was there, I didn't just passively take it in. I'll admit, I did not enjoy the state fair in Minnesota. But I did eat four... Oh, way too many people. I ate four different types of fried candy bars while I was there. So... Waz replied, that's amazing, and that is the most unfiltered look of Minnesota's finest as you can have, and if you've been there, you now have free reign to make fun of Minnesota. So I'm clear, Andrew, just like with the Canadians, I can now do whatever I want when it comes to mocking Minnesota and its residents. I will put that into my pocket for later use, but I want you to know that uh, everyone there should be prepared for future shots. It's really funny that you say that because when I was... When I was reading that Minnesota is rated the number two state, I couldn't think of anything I would ever want to go to Minnesota for except the Minnesota State Fair. And I <laughs> feel that way because of like three or four years ago, I think it was when Wiggins was first drafted um, or it may have been the year that, that Towns was drafted. The T-Wolves like took their rookies to the Minnesota State Fair and took a bunch of pictures and it just looked delightful. It looked like a lot of fun Really nice weather, nice and cool, uh, and yeah, that's that's on my bucket list because of the Minnesota Timberwolves like social media team. They convinced me to come for the state fair at some point in my life, but beyond that, I well, don't really have passionate takes either way. The Timberwolves did have a nice booth there at the state fair, and actually, I was surprised by how many people were wearing Timberwolves uh, gear when I was there. That was nice and impressive. Look, some parts of the state fair are better than others. Uh, there's a part where you could, you know, ride Ferris wheels and play the typical carnival games. And that was okay. But I didn't realize exactly what the livestock show, uh, aspect was. So I wandered into a barn and I still smell like that barn six months later, because (laughs) there's just hundreds of cows and horses and every other kind of animal out there that just creates just tons of manure and that will stick with you for the rest of the day. I mean, you'd have to wear three different colognes to get rid of the smell of the livestock show at the Minnesota State Fair. So steer clear if you're going to ever go in the future. Just stick to the carnival games. There was also a, a logger uh, competition where these guys were sort of seeing who could uh, you know, roll a log faster and stay <laughs> on longer without falling yeah. into the water, who who could like hack through a tree faster. I mean, there was a lot going on. Um, and I do think also Minnesota is probably underrated in terms of an outdoor destination. Haven't spent a, a ton of time there, but if you have 10,000 lakes, you're doing something right. We needed a social media team following you at the state fair. I could have watched that for hours. Uh, but yeah. gr- we needed, we needed an ambulance you. team. <laughs> we needed an ambulance team following me because I was about halfway through a panic attack for six straight hours, but it was fine. Good. Well, I'm glad you made it. Um, and next email is from Christian, who just sent John Wall's 2022 salary is $43 million. Uh, that's all he said in the email. And let me tell you, that is great trolling and a great way to drive me insane if you want to just remind me of the wall contract throughout the rest of this season um next question is jason well hold on slow down (laughs) we're not gonna jump over that that quickly let me ask you this in all seriousness i've joked about you needing to trade them i've joked about buying them out everything else 
if you could say like foresee the future at what moment would you trade john wall like would it be at the end of next season would it be at the end of two years from now like how many more years of the john wall experiment are you willing to undertake knowing that the 43.8 million dollar time bomb is on the end of this thing um i you're not going to get me to commit one way or the other, no matter how many times you try. I, I want it on the record that I'm free to rescind all of my wall skepticism as soon as he comes back and the playoffs begin. But to answer your question, yeah, we'll we'll just see where we we'll see where we end up this summer. Okay, I it wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't be against it if the the conversation was had this summer. Put it that way. But Man, uh, you're like Marco Rubio at the uh, the gun <laughs> town hall. <laughs> Come on, yes. man, take a stand. Give me an answer. Yeah, who did you compare me to earlier this year? I think it was uh, Jason Chaffetz, Chaffetz or whatever. Chaffetz, yeah, yeah. yeah. that was dark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> low Come point on, for take me a on stand, Andrew. <laughs> take a stand. So Jason says, let's say that you entered the draft this year with a special rule in place only for you that said that each bucket you scored was worth 20 points, but otherwise all rules applied normally. Do you think that you would be drafted? If so, which teams would want this and how would they use you? Did you think about this at all? Not really. Look, you're the bucket getter. I mean, this one's in your wheelhouse and I, you're also pretty <laughs> confident in your own game. You've compared yourself to basically every electric sixth man who's ever existed. So I, my impression is that you would be the first guy off the bench and your team would essentially give you the first seven possessions to just shoot the ball at, at will. And if you made three of your seven shots... Uh, that would be what sixty points. So your team wins, right? Yeah. Well, so the, it's it's tricky because first of all, he says each bucket you score is worth twenty points. I think that threes should probably be worth proportionally more. So maybe threes are worth thirty or something. Um, I don't. I don't know. I think I would be drafted, but I don't know how <laughs> how often I would be used because I would still be like a real massive liability. But I think that like Daryl Morey or or. Us, one of the smarter teams, like the Spurs, would find a way to hide my weaknesses, and uh, and I would basically be allowed to just cherry pick for most of the game. And if if, if every layup is worth twenty points, you can ultimately I would help more than I hurt. I think uh, so. I'm betting no on myself question. here. <laughs> Well, I love how you're putting yourself on the Rockets and the Spurs. They're, no, I mean, you're, you're half right here. Teams would figure out how to use you, and I can tell you who would figure out how to use you. It's the Sacramento Kings who already wanted to do this, even though That's the baskets true. were only going to be worth two points. They wanted to play five on four, uh, according to the famous reporting. Would, I think Vlade, Vlade would take you in the lottery if he knew you could do this. And look, I mean, you... You would only need to basically hit, what, 10% of your layups to have the math work out. You know, you figure you're on the court for 10 possessions. How many points are they really going to score the other end? As long as you can get one 20-point basket, you're still a, a positive. I think your plus-minus would actually rival uh, some of the best in the game. You know, you'd be right up there with Chris Paul in the limited playing time, uh, of course. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you've got a shot. So don't undersell yourself. You're going to go early in the first round with your amazing skill. You're going to be a one-trick pony. <laughs> and you know who really wishes that this was a thing is Jaleel Okafor. If Jaleel Okafor could great. somehow get 20 <laughs> points for every basket, he would actually have a future in the NBA yeah, right layups now. layups have not been a problem for Okafor. Let me ask you this, though. Would you 
do it if you had to go to the Kings and you knew that you were going to be this oh, like sideshow gimmick of the NBA? I I don't know if I would. It would be like a difficult yeah, conversation would. to have. Okay, come on, <laughs> you you definitely would. You're getting five star treatment around the league. You'd have. I mean, if uh, Nick Stauskas can be the Sauce Castillo guy and m- milk that for months in Sacramento, imagine the merchandising and branding opportunities. You'd be blowing up on cr- like, like crazy on Instagram. Okay. You'd be a sensation. Uh, you know, you could probably you know adopt a Lavar Ball esque persona and get really, <laughs> really famous. Because you know, what do you really have to back up? All you have to do is make layups for twenty points every once in a while. This would be your best life, Andrew. What are you talking about? I think you're you're underestimating how emasculating this existence would be, and then couple that with moving to Sacramento and daily life with the Sacramento Kings. It would be. A tougher call. You're right that if you just abandon all shame and lean into like Facebook Live <laughs> fame, you could have a pretty good life. But I don't know if I would. I'm ready to commit to life with the Kings. With the Spurs, I would do it just for just for time with Pop. But um, two more questions. Abdul says, in listening to the most recent podcast, I noticed something that did nothing less than puzzle me. At around the 22-minute mark, Ben mentions Andrew, presumably at B-dubs, shout out to the sponsors, and he says that Andrew would be at the bar drinking his ranch and eating his cheese curds. Drinking ranch? Upon hearing this and adding it to our well-found knowledge of the Benegrino and the peanut butter taco, both Gulliver specialties, I have one question. Does Ben not know how food works? I know he's a vegetarian and had to get his nutrients somehow. But ranch drinking is not the way. We may need to stage a bentervention. Inspired email. Look, Abdul, I could tell you fast forward through our commercials. The drinking the ranch thing was a deep cut reference to one of our Buffalo Wild Wings commercials where I was insinuating that some people might assume if they went to that establishment, there wouldn't be any food for them to eat and they'd have to settle for drinking ranch. So it was... I'll admit, a little too deep of an inside joke. There was like four layers to it. You're probably not listening that closely when we do our <laughs> seven-minute ad reads for you know the, the sports chain on your local block. I understand how food works pretty well. I, I don't care about food that much. I will admit, uh, I have a very boring diet. Uh, I eat basically the same thing every day. It's part of being the most efficient person you can be. And I am willing to cede all higher ground, all high horses on the food discourse to Andrew or anyone else, including you, Abdul. Yeah. Well, listen, Abdul, I was tuning Ben out as I do for most of the podcast. So I didn't even hear him say <laughs> drinking his ranch. I, d- I will say as far as Ben and food are concerned, he's a lot more comfortable with ranch dressing than I have I've been. I think ranch dressing is something you give up when you turn 10 years old, but Ben Ben has kept it going. Um <laughs> And we need to stage an intervention with Ben for a lot of different reasons, but we, we could add this to the list. Um, and then the last, the last note that we got was from Lindsay, who says, I don't have a question or a comment, just here to stand with Katie and Kiera, but not Elizabeth. Fuck yeah, ladies. Um, so thank you for Boo. writing in, Lindsay. Look. This doesn't have to come at Elizabeth's expense. I'm standing with Elizabeth as always. Andrew, <laughs> why did you let this divisive rhetoric in? I don't that was actually the least device if we got another female listener who wrote in to cross-examine you about your DeRozan takes for the hundredth time I decided not to go down that route so I don't know I think I think Elizabeth feels welcome she knows that she has a place in the open floor community so I'm not too worried about her 
she's a star. She's a future star. She's been carrying this show for like three months. We really appreciate Elizabeth, Lindsay, Kiara, Katie, and all the other female listeners for weighing in. Andrew, it's been great talking to you. I'm so glad you're back. I think we need to remind people, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're almost up to 31,450, which would be an awesome benchmark for us to hit. We'd love it. And Andrew will continue to read your five-star reviews uh, if you submit them on future episodes. Any questions, comments, concerns, uh, arguments over teams like the Pacers or the Magic or the other teams that we tend to overlook, send them to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Andrew, I'm so glad you're healthy. Uh, Good luck to your Wizards going forward here this week, and I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.